Hello, my name is Justin DeClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And this is a very important episode. More important than most important, because it's our hundreds one. And we're going to be talking about Jackie Chan. I think that you and I, we each have our areas of expertise. We have our things that we love. And this, more than anything, is the topic that unites us. <laughs> it's the one that we discuss probably the most, yes. <laughs> Jackie Chan. And we kind of made a joke of it when we uh, discussed doing an episode on him that, oh, it'll be our hundredth episode, seemingly never believing we would make it that far. I, the thought, you know, when we started this podcast, when I, when I very reluctantly started this podcast and was ashamed to have a podcast in the early days that we would make it to 100 was just too much. But now here we are. We've watched a handful of Jackie Chan films. And for better or worse, this podcast is my life now. So, you know. Hey, hey, hey. This is my life. You have other miscellaneous podcasts you also participate in. That's true. But this is the one that grounds you, that defines who you are, that will be carved upon your gravestone. Ah, when you put it that way. <laughs> and it's been building to this. Jackie Chan. So, when did you fall in love with everyone's favorite kung fu comedian, Will? I would say pretty much the time that anyone uh, of our age and skin color on this continent fell in love with him. Kind of in that Rumble in the Bronx era. I mean, you remember seeing the the ads for Rumble in the Bronx. Where I remember seeing it on... TBS is the first time I saw Rumble in the Bronx, and I taped it on VHS, and I watched it over and over and over again. The only action star who does all his own stunts. Well, I should jump in right now and say that Jackie Chan does not do all of his own stunts, even in his prime. Wait, wait. Yeah. Wait, what? This is what we're going to do with this episode. We're going to, like, break some of those. We're a couple of mythbusters. (laughs) But the first one I saw was First Strike. I also remember being very impressed by seeing on TV a clip from the, uh, the blooper reel from First Strike where he's jumping through the ladder and he keeps hurting himself over and over again as he jumps through the ladder. So I think that there is that level of um, endearing quality to him. The fact that you see these blooper reels and you see him try to do this stuff and fail. Yeah. Which makes him more interesting to especially kids. And like when we were kids on the schoolyard, we used to talk about Jackie Chan almost like he was a folk hero. Mm. Like you you would hear about all the injuries that he'd had. I, I remember one kid for show and tell brought in this poster for Rumble in the Bronx uh, that had a picture of his body with little arrows to all the body parts and it would say, you know, nose broken during the making of um, Operation Condor, you know, head um, got a hole in his skull from Armor of God, you know, rib cage broken during this, that, that. Yeah. Well, I don't want to jump too far ahead because we're going to do something this episode that we don't usually do, which is go through a artist's work chronologically because I feel that there's something to be gained by doing that especially someone like Jackie Chan that me and Will know very well in each phase of his career well also Jackie Chan just as a career his career is just this huge teeming edifice it's just fascinating how many times he's had rebirth or like he reevaluated what his career meant and went in a different direction because we'll get to the Hollywood era, but in any other normal career, that is the end of it. And he's also a truly transnational star. He's somebody who 
for many years was the biggest star in Hong Kong, like pre-handover Hong Kong, who uh, created a different brand in Hollywood uh, Mm -hmm. after several failed attempts. But he was also very popular in Japan. He was popular in South America and Europe long before he was popular in uh, America. And now uh, he's this like Communist Party mouthpiece in China. He's reinvented himself in the last decade all over again. So let's jump all the way to the beginning, which is, where's Jackie from? He was born uh, April 7th, 1954. His real name is Chan Kon Sang. Translates literally to born in Hong Kong, Chan. And he was the son of Charles and Lily Chan, who were refugees from the Chinese Civil War. He has been described as an energetic child in that classic, like, Buster Keaton way, in that, like, oh, even when he was a kid, he was doing all this crazy shit. And basically, his parents dumped him at a school where they didn't have to take care of him. Well, there was a famous story that right after his mom gave birth to him, they almost sold him for $26 to like, what, like a British doctor? Mm -hmm. But they waited six years before they ended up actually basically selling him into a life of indentured servitude with the Chinese opera school. And if you want to know more about Charles and Lily Chan, his parents, for some reason or other, there is a movie about their lives (laughs) called A Tale of Three Cities that came out in 2015. Starring Tang Wei from Lost Caution. Yeah. <laughs> and it was it's a big, serious, dramatic production that Jackie Chan himself does not appear in and is not mentioned for some weird reason. It's like a, it's like that show Gotham, but for Jackie Chan. <laughs> So at the age of six, Jackie, as a, as a small boy, was sold into the Chinese Opera Company. And uh, Chinese opera at, at the time was a very thriving art form, not like the opera that we have here. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was very uh, a very acrobatic art form. And it was also a very populist in the terms that it could play to any crowd. Yeah. Like uh, the Peking Opera School specifically, they used to do shows at the Lai Chi Kuk amusement park in Kowloon, which Jackie Chan himself as a child would perform in, which, as Will discovered, is documented in the background of an episode of Robert Cult's I Spy. Yes. Where you can actually see a very young Jackie Chan and his classmates doing like acrobatics and stuff like that. Yeah. So if you don't know what the Peking Opera School is... Like Will said, it was basically like the worst boarding school slash army barracks ever. So from like age six to 16, Jackie and his classmates um, from like 6 a.m. to midnight are just forced into backbreaking labor, you know, horrible training regimens. Uh, They would be beaten and deprived of food if they didn't live up to their master's expectations. They had almost no formal education at all, and even to the point where at least as late as the 90s, Jackie Chan was functionally illiterate. In his book, I Am Jackie Chan... Which he, he of course, wrote. He spends a long time describing his experience in the Peking Opera School. This is the event in his life that had not only defined him, but he keeps going back to over and over again. You cannot listen to an interview with him where that does not get touched upon at some point in time. And if you watch an early Jackie Chan movie like Drunken Master, and you marvel at his physical prowess, at his unbelievable athletic ability, and you think, why hasn't there been a star since that why hasn't there been a generation of stars to take the mantle of people like Jackie Chan and Sam Hogg and it's because well the kind of backbreaking horrific training that the Chinese opera school forced upon these kids is no longer common anymore but this school 
did something very important in Jackie's life as well, other than give him the acrobatic training, which is it gave him the connections that would define his career up until this day. Um, when you read about Jackie Chan and his school days, it's impossible to avoid what's the seven little fortunes. Mm. So these were seven students that was led by their teacher, Yu Jim Yun, and they actually all adopted his name. Yun. So uh, they were known as Yung Lun, who was also known as Sammo Hung. There's Yung Lu, who was Jackie Chan. Yung Bao, who was the third brother in Sammo Hung, Jackie Chan, and Yun Bao. The three uh, of them had many films together. Uh, Yun Kwai, also known as Corey Yun, who would go on to be a very famous director. And any late 90s, early 2000s Hollywood martial arts film has him as a choreographer. He was Jet Li's personal action choreographer for a long time. Yun Hua, who was mostly famous for doing villainous roles in movies. He's in a lot of Jackie Chan films in the background. And most famously, he has uh, a prominent support role in Kung Fu Hustle. Uh, Yung Tak and Yung Mo. Both of those never really got any fame, but they worked a lot with Sammo Hung. But like right in there, you've got three of the biggest Hong Kong action stars of the 80s, one of the biggest Hong Kong choreographers of all time, several other prolific stuntmen and actors. Like it's a whole generation of Hong Kong stars that came out of this awful school. And Sammo Hung was the leader of them. He was the oldest in I Am Jackie Chan uh, Jackie talks about how Sammo was a huge bully that he hated. <laughs> and when he first arrived in school, there was a standoff where Sammo kept punching him in the nose, trying to get him to like <laughs> join his side. And Jackie just refused to do it. And Sammo Hung was also the first of them after they were released from the Chinese opera school. They all transitioned into the burgeoning Hong Kong film industry to become stuntmen. And Sammo was the first one to become something of a star. Yeah, he actually got involved with filmmakers like King Hu with a touch of Zen, where he actually worked on some of the action. He became most famously friends with Bruce Lee and um, was a stuntman in a bunch of films. And in the opening scene of Enter the Dragon, he fights Bruce Lee. And Sammo actually, after a few years of not being involved with Jackie, brought him under his fold again. And that's why Jackie is uh, one of the stuntmen that gets beaten up by Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from there, Jackie kind of like bounced around, mostly working for Sammo and looking for a chance to act. After the death of Bruce Lee in the Hong Kong film industry, many unscrupulous producers were looking for the next Bruce Lee. And among them, the director-producer Lo Wei. Who, who's the one who basically launched Bruce Lee. Yeah, he, he directed Bruce Lee's films The Big Boss and Fist of Fury. Uh, Jackie Chan had earned this reputation in the Hong Kong film industry as being the stuntman who would do the really crazy, really terrible stunts. Mm-hmm. The stunts that other people would be afraid to do. So they picked him and they did, uh, you know, seven or eight kind of serious kung fu movies that weren't very good. New Fist of Fury. Uh, Shaolin Wooden Men. They're very long, sometimes up to two hours, oh, as we discovered when we started watching Shaolin Wooden Men, that are very generic. Like, Jackie is good at what he does, but Lo Wei is a man who was after a buck. He wasn't really interested in, like, invigorating the genre or doing anything new. He just wanted a product that he could sell. There are a ton of early Jackie Chan movies, Drunken Master and Snake in the Eagle's Shadow from 1978. They are the breakthrough. They're the ones where his comic kung fu style is crystallized. But there are a ton of movies before that that, you know, if you were a kid in the 90s or the early 2000s trying to get into Jackie Chan, mm. you would find them in Walmart on public domain DVDs. But you wouldn't find one like All the Family, the one where Jackie does not fight, but does appear nude. <laughs> well, yeah, he does. A, he has a sex scene in that one. And... Uh, 
uh, it was kind of like a soft core. Well, like it wasn't really even really like sometimes you'll see like clickbait lists of like famous actors who did porn. Mm-hmm. And does Jackie appear? Yeah, though? Jackie does. It's not a pornography. It's not porn. Yeah. yeah, but you do get to see his dick. You do. You see his dick? Yes, you do. I did not. I've, I've not seen all. Well, you know, I should check that out because I am a little curious what Jackie Chan's dick looks like. But We've seen his ass in a ton of movies. One of those movies that kind of gets lost in the shuffle but appears in those public domain discs is Hand of Death, which is a 1976 film that not only co-stars Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung, but was directed by one Mr. John Woo. And it's... It's not the John Woo, Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung movie you want. No, this is the John Woo who just finished working with famous director at the Shaw Brothers studio, Chang Che, and just proceeded to make one to prove that he could. It wasn't his first film. It was like his uh, third or fourth, I think. But you can definitely feel a filmmaker who just wants to finish making a movie. He's not going to reinvent the wheel here. Yeah, I so I watched half of this movie for the podcast. You you watched the whole thing. It is as average and generic a kung fu movie from this period as you can get, which means it's pretty watchable. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the fights start pretty slow, but... Some of the ones in the middle, when I left off, were getting pretty good. Yeah, and by the end, there's like a big climax where the hero makes a team of people that includes Jackie Chan, and they go and take the villain, and they defeat him in a pretty cool battle. But it's one of those kung fu films that you would approach a few years down the line and go, wait, did I see that? Yeah. I don't know. And it would take you maybe 20 minutes to figure out if you had. Well, there's no humor and all the characters are just straight plywood mm-hmm. um and the the fight scenes well you know the fight scenes seem average compared to other movies of that era but then i don't know you compare them to kung fu movies now and like the acrobatics are pretty impressive mm-hmm. it's still from that era when you had all these like fucking chinese opera people uh who could do like incredible backflips yeah like in this movie sammo hung wearing the goofiest buck teeth in movie history still does his sammo hung stuff so he does like a bunch of backflips and he's working with his crew you get to see yung wa at one point and yung bao shows up as an extra that gets killed so all the core players that would go on to define the genre are present but, you know, they're still getting their sea legs. Yeah. Uh, Jackie has a pretty minor supporting role in this, although this is w- one of those movies that I think Fox got the rights to it and put it out on DVD with his face on the cover. Mm-hmm. And this is also a movie that he made before he'd had the that Asian eyelid surgery. That yeah, makes his Lo eyes. Wei made him get that surgery that kind of like opened his eyes. To make him look more Western. Mm-hmm. And so after this film, which it feels just like a contract job, Jackie continued to work with Lo Wei. They made so many movies so quickly and they just weren't doing the business that they expected it to do. Well, it's impossible to imagine Jackie Chan as the next Bruce Lee. I mean, not only because we know him now as a comic kung fu star, but he doesn't have the same charisma as Bruce Lee. He's you know, a small, not particularly handsome, not particularly, um, he doesn't have a lot of sex appeal. He's a pleasant screen personality, but he's not intimidating at all. And he doesn't care, have the swagger that Bruce Lee does. I mean, they tried so hard, like in Shallow and Wooden Men, they even made him mute in an attempt to like be a more intimidating screen figure. And it just doesn't work. Well, he's like, he his face looks too silly. Yeah. He's got this big nose, you know? <laughs> exactly. And so eventually Lo Wei, who was still churning these out kind of just gave a little bit of control to Jackie. Jackie had all these ideas of what he wanted to do with kung fu movies and this kind of played out in a picture called Half a Loaf of Kung Fu. 
which was his first real comedy kung fu movie. And that which Lo Wei locked in the vault and didn't release for several years until after Jackie Chan had become popular. So on one hand, Lo Wei is the one that gave Jackie Chan the chance to star in movies. While it did lead to nothing, did grab the attention of another producer, and that's In Young. So in 1978, there's the one-two punch of Snake in the Eagle's Shadow and especially Drunken Master, where, as Jackie Chan has said in so many interviews since then, he was designed to be an inverse of Bruce Lee. You know, Bruce Lee, punch high, I punch low. Bruce Lee is a superhero. I, I punch, ah, it hurts. And this came out of the fact that Jackie wasn't working for Lo Wei. He had been loaned out of his contract to work for... In Sing Young and seasonal films. And the filmmaker that they put Jackie with could not have been a more perfect match, and that was Yu Wo Ping. And people may recognize his name as the action choreographer who did stuff like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and The Matrix. And even in 1978, he was like a Shaw Brother utility player and was working his way up as an action choreographer and as a director. Well, his style of martial arts couldn't be more different than Bruce Lee's. Bruce Lee is very um, quick and brutal and direct not a lot a very no frills style without a lot of um you know ostentatious motion uh you and woping is all about you know the wild acrobatics drunken master which is really the key text in in these early years of jackie chan i revisited it this week and I think it might be my favorite Jackie Chan movie. It's so good. I mean, it's it's kind of like, not to compare it with these movies in any other way, but watching it, I was reminded of something like Breathless or something like A Hard Day's Night, where it's this like lightning in a bottle. It's this moment when somebody sort of discovers the possibilities of the medium, discovers the possibilities of their talent, and, and is still has that initial rush of excitement over it. What's fascinating is that Drunken Master is so fully formed right from the get-go. And while Jackie had been making movies for a few years, they're so distant to what Drunken Master is and that it exists in such a pure form is just, you know, breathtaking. In this one, he plays Wong Fei Hung, and Western audiences may not be familiar with Wong Fei Hung, but he was a great Chinese folk hero, an herbalist, and a, a Chinese patriot, the subject of over 100 movies in Hong Kong. There was one very famous Wong Fei Hung series that actually did run for a hundred films. Yes. And from there, there was kind of breakoffs. There was a lot of Shaw Brother pictures, like Marshall Club was Gordon Liu that starred Wong Fei Hung. And then there was also later on in the 90s, he became really popular again when Choi Hark made Once Upon a Time in China, starring Jet Li, which is a Wong Fei Hung story. But the gimmick with Drunken Master is this is before he becomes the great revered patriot and is a bratty school child uh, and has to learn uh, the martial way. Uh, and so he gets trained by his stern taskmaster of a teacher, Beggar So, another great Chinese folk hero. And of course, the other gimmick is that he can fight better if he learn if he gets drunk and does the drunken boxing style. And his master is also played by Yu Ping's father, yeah, who was also a stuntman. And like you know, what, what's funny about this movie, like like the idea of somebody, the drunker they get, the better they can get at kung fu, is such a ridiculous and awful notion. And but yet, such a pure Jackie Chan idea, like it. It, it's super funny and also the movie actually does show you some of the bad sides of alcoholism <laughs> like there's that section in the movie when beggar so when, when like wong fei hung goes off and um to get beggar so a drink but then he spends the money just buying stuff for himself 
and you see Beggar So back at his little hut, and he's, he's like trembling. He's getting the DTs, and the villain comes and tries to fight him, and he can't fight because he's got the DTs. <laughs> like there's a there is a certain melancholy undercurrent to the depiction of alcoholism in this film, which Jackie Chan would put the ultimate pin on in the conclusion of the sequel, Drunken Master Two. Uh, well, yeah, so. Jackie Chan has often said that he regretted that Drunken Master glamorized alcoholism. And in Drunken Master 2, he tried to make amends with a scene that was cut from the American release prints, where at the end, he, I don't know... Basically shows up and he looks... Uh, like he has mental difficulties. He, you know, when I was watching Drunken Master again, like Drunken Master is almost two hours long. Even so, I think it really flies by. It's on. It was on Netflix, and I highly encourage anyone to watch it. Like, it has so many fights in it, and, you know, you can take for granted what he does because these fights are so dense. Mm-hmm. There's so much packed into them. Like, think how hard it is to do one backflip, and then think about how much stuff how many how many flips how many like propelling himself through a small space you know how how many like manipulating two bodies uh, sorry and I, like it looks i'm babbling so but. easy when you see it on screen and after drunken master uh jackie actually had to go back and work for low way again mm-hmm. and he ended up making fearless hyena which was his attempt to kind of bring that kung fu comedy thing and he was credited as a co-director but it, it's okay fearless hyena it's, it's it feels good. kind of like yeah a little bit of a pale imitation it wasn't until the next film in 1980 the young master that jackie chan directed himself that i feel that his vision matures into even a little bit beyond what drunken master mm-hmm. is which was still like person-on-person fight scene in the young master jackie's he likes to talk about it as first official directorial debut this is the first time that you see jackie start to consider every fight as like what is the gimmick of this fight scene and then i'm going to exploit it from every possible angle well you know even in drunken master like it's impressive that i guess one of his central ideas which is that the fight can be centered around an object like, you can do so much business with a stool mm-hmm. in a fight, and you can find every way to use that stool. That's present in Drunken Master. And then, yeah, the young master takes it to the next level. Because, like, in this film, you have a scene where uh, Jackie is fighting a police officer. Then he realizes that the police officer really loves this one um, flute that he has, and he keeps putting the flute in front of his face so the police officer has to not hit it mm-hmm. and find weird ways to try to get at him. Or even even like you mentioned, a fight with a bench and the way that you can use the bench and every angle of the bench to get comedic potential and just jaw-dropping awesomeness out of the physical feats you can get out of that is something that people very rarely discuss when they're talking about Jackie Chan. They say he does these crazy fight scenes. Well, we think of Jackie Chan so much in terms of stunts. Yes. And that's definitely how he was marketed when he was brought over to America in the 90s. It's like every movie is going to have a scene where he jumps from one building to the other building and and risks death. Or there will be a scene where, yeah, he jumps through a ladder. It's all this like Guinness World Record shit. When it's difficult to quantify what he's actually a genius at doing which is constructing a scene and having a back and forth and how all of these elements play together well he's often compared to buster keaton revisiting some of his movies this week that comparison seemed very apt because like buster keaton he's this little man in this giant 
machine. There's actually a really good uh, article that uh, the critic David Kerr wrote before Jackie became a hit in uh, North America, where he compares Jackie as not a anarchic figure. He's not creating chaos where he goes. He's actually a conservative one, which is he's trying to bring order to these crazy situations that he <laughs> finds himself in. And the frustration that he feels not getting this order is where the comedy comes from. Yeah, like he's a very visual filmmaker who visualizes his own body as one part of a larger machinery. We watched one of his films, Miracles, this week, mm-hmm. where he's doing all these shenanigans on the on the, uh, a second story railing and and the spiral staircase and it's like imagining the different ways that he can manipulate his body in this structure that's what's so crazy about it and it's frustrating because this kind of action will never be respected in the way that it deserves to be because the kung fu genre in it of itself is a lower class genre well you know it's cliche to compare him to ballet and i think people sort of maybe unthinkingly compare him to ballet but you know you see some of these action scenes and they really are like ballet mm-hmm. except better than ballet because <laughs> it's harder yeah it's harder and it's more complex <laughs> and there's also a level of difficulty in telling a story through this action mm-hmm. because it's not just like a scene in Young Master, like the the one that kind of climaxes the film is this 20 minute battle between him and Wong in sick where Jackie is just pummeled to like nothing. Like it's I think it's one of the most brutal fight scenes in a Jackie Chan movie. And the levels that it takes to tell a story where you're engaged in what's going on and that there's an, a back and forth is so complex but looks so simple on screen mm-hmm. that it's almost frustrating as a fan of it that you want to look around and go like, "Don't you understand why this is good?" Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, revisiting his movies too, like one might not always think of these action scenes as an art form where the artist's personality is expressed through them. But like, I was reminded of what a Jackie Chan scene looks like artistically, philosophically, how a Jackie Chan fight scene, what it has to say is different than what a Bruce Lee fight scene says or what a Sammo Hung fight scene says. Because a lot of people, when they talk about Jackie Chan fight scenes, they mean one very specific thing, and that's kung fu and comedy. Mm-hmm. But that's not exactly what that means. Like, it, it, his fight scenes have a philosophy to mm-hmm. them that is somewhat similar to what, a, a, like, a Buster Keaton set piece looks like. And it was actually pretty fast that Hollywood wised up and um, Golden Harvest, the company that he was working for at that time, decided to try to make him an international star. And they did this by pairing him up with the man that technically, I guess, made Bruce Lee a star, Robert Klaus, the director of Enter the Dragon and the director of the Jackie Chan film Battle Creek Brawl, which came out in 1980. I have a soft spot for this movie. Yeah, um, the thing about Battle Creek Brawl is it gets the uh, happy-go-lucky, charming Jackie Chan personality. And it's also fun to see Jackie Chan in like a Depression-era America context. And I feel like Robert Klaus is a director that doesn't have the chops to give Jackie what he needs to do, but he respects what Jackie does and wants to see him do these things. Well, you know, my sense with Enter the Dragon is that Bruce Lee was a very strong-willed personality. And also, Bruce Lee was had enough clout in the Hong Kong film industry that he could basically say, I'm directing my own action scenes. Mm -hmm. With Battle Creek Brawl, I'm not sure that Jackie Chan was... Uh, that forceful a presence on the he set. He could have been, though, with the hits of Drunken Master. Yeah. And, and he's talked about that some of the big problems he had on the production is the fact that 
uh, American stuntmen did not know how to react to the scenes that he would set up. Well, I think Bruce Lee was a much more self-conscious artist than Jackie Chan was. Like, Bruce Lee was a martial artist first and and foremost. He regarded uh, the movies as a vehicle with which to express his philosophy of the martial art. Jackie Chan was an entertainer, and I think he's a very instinctive entertainer. Uh, I don't think he has anything that he really, like any grand philosophy he wants to communicate, but a philosophy manifests itself nonetheless. But it does need certain elements to make them work as well as it can. Because even in Battle Creek Brawl, there's prop fighting. There's like Jackie, like pretending that he's not fighting, but really fighting sequences. That's a funny scene, yeah. But it's also stuck in a story that like doesn't quite know what to do with him. Mm -hmm. And we're introduced here to the thing that would define Jackie for the rest of his life. The fact that he just doesn't speak English very well. Yes. And this would never change. In an interview for Shock Cinema, Jackie's co-star, Christine DeBell... Uh, From Alice in Wonderland? (laughs) The pornography version? Yes. (laughs) Uh, Mentions that she would spend all of her free time working with Jackie to try to improve his English. And in her own words, she said, I don't understand why it has not gotten any better since that time. Well, I mean, do you remember the bloopers in Rush Hour 3? When there's that there, there's that bit where he says, uh, uh, maybe we should put on a dirty movie, only nine ninety nine, and then he keeps cutting to alternate takes where Brett Ratner was feeding him different lines. So he'd be like, I like the ones with hairy women. I like a locker room scene. I like, and then and then at one point he looks at the camera and says. What are you making me say? Jackie would often learn his lines phonetically, and even as recent as The Foreigner, the film that came out this year, would read all of his lines off cue cards throughout the scene. Well, I mean, there are times when you see him interviewed, uh, and we've seen him interviewed on stage a few times in Toronto, where his approach to the English language is almost like his approach in a Jackie Chan fight scene, where he's like grasping at whatever props are available you know whether it like in a fight scene you might be grasping at like pool noodles and uh chairs and you know whatever whatever he can do to bluff his way through the fight (laughs) and in a conversation he's grasping at whatever word he you know he can get to and so battle creek brawl wasn't a big hit but like golden harvest kept trying to push him as an international star he appears in both cannonball run movies as a (laughs) japanese race car driver in one of them appearing with michael hugh the famous comedian of the hugh brothers and in the other one appearing with uh, richard kyle uh, from the james bond films (laughs) and in i am jackie chan his autobiography he tells a funny story where uh, sammy davis jr uh, kept coming up to him on the set and saying cicadas and then he found out later, Sammy Davis Jr. thought that cicadas meant hello in Japanese. And then Jackie Chan says to him, I'm Chinese, not Japanese. And he goes, all right, baby. <laughs> Walks off. I mean, we skipped the most famous Jackie Chan story of all time, which he says in every interview ever, which is when he first arrived at North America and he wanted to go and order breakfast. He goes to the restaurant and he says, egg bacon sausage and that's and then the way the waitress says something to him and he has no idea what she could possibly be saying he goes because he had trained himself just to say those three words egg, bacon sausage and in reality what she probably was going to say was like how do you want your eggs mm-hmm. and this is a story that he says in every interview <laughs> to this day we saw him on stage yeah. say that and during that interview he actually started to tell the story and went, you guys don't want to hear this. You know this, right? Yeah. And the interviewer was like, no, you have to say it. And he's like, all right, I guess this is what they want. <laughs> but even though that he was having difficulty 
penetrating that English-speaking market, he was pretty much at the height of his power in Hong Kong, like as high as you could get at that time, because in 1982, he directed Dragon Lord. And this is a film that's not really held in much high regard as like a classic Jackie Chan film, but it is a fascinating production in the sense that it was incredibly difficult for Jackie because he kept trying to push things as far as they could go. You've probably heard of this film only in the context of... Jackie doing something like a thousand takes to get something perfect. I, I believe he has the Guinness record for most takes of a scene for that film. And it's not a action scene in the conventional sense. It's him hitting a shuttlecock up in the air and then through a net. And a shuttlecock is basically a beanbag. But Dragon Lord is the last of his um, chop socky movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that, he made Project A. Yep, which is one of his best movies and is is brings the kung fu genre to the 20th century albeit like the early 20th century and this is the first uh movie that he really got involved with sammo hong and yun bao in like kind of an on uh, screen element because while they did share the screen here and there they never like shared the screen in the sense that they were all starring because they became known pretty much as the three brothers yeah how do you feel about their chemistry in the 80s what made it work uh i think that they all bring something different to um their roles and action in and of itself jackie is more of that clumsy everyman kung fu star mm-hmm. Samo is very specific in the way that he fights very brutal and it's all like feels like real hits and direct. Mm -hmm. And Yung Bao, what he was famous for was acrobatics. Mm -hmm. He's the one who's doing all the crazy flips and stuff like that. He was the one that they would always utilize in their films to do the stunts for people. And he would continue to do that way deep into his career, even into the 90s, where he would do like the acrobatic flips for his co-stars. Project A is also the first movie where you see Jackie Chan start to become conscious of his place in the lineage of great screen comedians. So there's a famous scene where he pays homage to the Harold Lloyd safety last clock tower scene where he's Mm. hanging from the clock tower. But in this one, Jackie Chan falls from the clock tower and falls like five stories through two awnings and lands on his head. And I think this would be one of the first examples of Jackie Chan doing a stunt as a pure stunt. Because that is not involving any specific skill. That is just him letting himself fall and hurt himself, essentially. And what's interesting about that scene is that famously he hung on the end of that waiting to fall for days Mm. he just needed to build up the courage the legend goes until he could finally do it and then he did three takes and those three takes are in the film yeah there's one where he where he bounces off one of the awnings (laughs) yeah that's right (laughs) and even in that scene they break the reality of it to show two different takes and two different things that happen. Yeah, and, you know, as Dave Kerr mentions in the article, that's when a Jackie Chan movie becomes a Jackie Chan documentary. And I think that you can also see a tension that's already forming in Project A between Sammo and Jackie, because Sammo was the biggest brother. Like, he was above Jackie from the start of Peking Opera School up until, like, pretty much Drunken Master. Yeah, uh, They both had careers that ran side by side. Samuel was a director as well. He was also a star. He also had hits. But at Project A, Jackie is more famous than he is. Mm -hmm. And even though that Samuel is directing Project A, he's co-starring in Project A, it's Jackie's face that they're going to put on the poster and he's the one that's leading the film. And Jackie's the one who starts to have these like global successes, movies that can be exported 
to the rest of the world. Samo was only briefly given the kinds of budgets Jackie was getting, and he never had the international reach that Jackie had. Did you know that Robert Klaus, uh, the film that he wanted to make was Jackie Chan after Battle Creek Brawl, was a pirate film? Oh, wow. And Project A is also a pirate film, and Jackie kind of stole that idea from him to make it his own? Uh, Also with Project A, like... Moving away from the kind of classical kung fu genre, you see Jackie Chan caring less about the martial arts, the form of the martial arts. Yeah, the the early movies, you know, are so much are so much about like kung fu, or they're about drunken boxing, or different kinds of styles. After that, he he's more about combining just like whatever style of martial arts looks good for the camera at that mm-hmm. particular moment combined with stunts and yeah. with the possibilities of the sets. In the 80s, every movie would be a clothesline for five action sequences. A big one at the beginning, a big one in the middle, a huge one at the end, and two smaller ones. And the reason for that is the way that the reels were broken up at the cinema is that you wanted the action scenes to hit basically in each reel. Yeah. And they would all be around like, what's this kind of set we haven't used? Mm-hmm. So Police Story 2, there's a fight scene on a playground. And then they'll use all the different possibilities of the playground. Twin Dragons has a fight in an auto workshop. So you can use all the all the different possibilities of like cars and gears and pulleys and stuff. Jackie has often talked in documentaries and interviews that he approaches films principally from action scenes and ideas that he would like to implement in action scenes and then crafting the story around those things. And oftentimes his movies in the 80s, like the shopping mall scene at the end of Police Story, which is one of his very best action scenes, that might have taken a month or two months to shoot. And the dialogue scenes, all the all the non-action scenes, might have taken two weeks mm-hmm. at most. So they continued to try to make Jackie an international star, specifically in English-speaking languages, with films like Wheels on Meals, which I think is the best Three Brothers film, other than Project mm-hmm. A, only because there's a novelty to see Sammo, Jackie, and Yung Bao in a, a European setting where they play um, cooks that mm-hmm. run a, a food truck and they run into, I don't know what it is, gangs of some sort. Who cares? Yeah. Well, that's the first one where we see Jackie in sort of an international setting. And from the mid 80s onward, Jackie becomes less Hong Kong specific. Mm-hmm. He starts to do more of these globe trotting movies like Operation Condor, Armor of the Gods. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes his brand, and he's talked about it in terms of like, oh, well, this is what a Jackie Chan film is, is like going around the world. Jackie Chan is not just Hong Kong, he's everyone. Mm-hmm. And this is also uh, really starting to cement that like, end villains will be you know, Caucasian fighters. Yeah. In the case of Wheels on Meals, it's uh, Benny the Jet, who was a very famous, like, real-life martial artist. Mm-hmm. And I understand that, like, Jackie would approach villains in that sense because it gives it more of a, like, international flair. There's not that um, stigma of, oh, well, it's just two Asian people fighting. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, it's an Asian guy and a white guy fighting. So it feels more real, I guess. Like, which is, I don't agree with that, but you can see why someone would try to sell it that way. Now, in the 80s, he's getting bigger and bigger budgets and he's getting more and more clout and his international exposure is getting greater. And in fact, he started to crack Great Britain because Jonathan Ross did that famous TV documentary about him, uh, The Incredibly Strange Film Show. And he did try to crack the English-speaking market again 
with a little film called The Protector. Ah, yes, directed by James Glickenhaus. Uh, A filmmaker who made a handful of action films, uh, rose to prominence for a super sleazy X-rated action film called The Exterminator, and that's why Jackie supposedly said he wanted to work with him, and there could not be a more different tonal style smashing together. Well, first of all, I don't think there were were a lot of American filmmakers lining up to work with Jackie Chan at the Mm -hmm. time, so it's not like he had his pick of the litter or anything. He didn't. Uh, But he did have his pick of the litter of partners that he could work with because he picked our man, Danny Aiello. (laughs) (laughs) Buddy cop movie, Jackie Chan and Danny Aiello together at last. Which the film uh, hangs on a sequence where Jackie goes, give me the fucking keys! Yes, because he's supposed to be like a Clint Eastwood-style Dirty Harry cop. I mean, it's a somewhat... I I have a soft spot for the Protector. It's okay. Well, he disliked the experience of the Protector so much that for the Hong Kong version, he filmed like 40 minutes of new scenes for it. And he actually went and took like the villain of the film, Bill Superfoot Wallace, and had him shoot new scenes, even ones that didn't involve Jackie, to just like pad the movie out with more action. That said, um, I prefer the Glickenhaus version. It's leaner. Doesn't have the weird Jackie comedy that he inserted in it. Stylistically, it's more coherent. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I would rather watch just a pure Glickenhaus film than a half Glickenhaus, half Jackie Chan film. And he doesn't say, give me the fucking keys. Give me the fucking keys. In the Hong Kong version. <laughs> but as, as an artist, you know, as, as, a, as a filmmaker, the, the turning point in Jackie's career with two movies in the late 80s, um, you watched Armor of God 2 Operation Condor, mm-hmm. and we both watched Miracles. Um, let's talk a little bit about Miracles. This was really his bid for a big prestige production. It's a 1930s set gangster remake of a Frank Capra film, A Pocket Full of Miracles. Yeah, um, it, you know, just a, a lavish film with musical numbers and crane shots. And Jackie you, loves his crane. You know, like old timey cars and you get to see Jackie in like an old timey suit with a fedora. Um, he plays a uh, a simpleton who, through a bizarre circumstance, is named as the head of a Hong Kong triad society, and he tries to make this gangster society legitimate. Uh, meanwhile, he moves on to help a poor, like flower lady, like in Chaplin City Lights, basically, mm-hmm. like a poor a poor flower lady, uh, reunite with her daughter. The daughter thinks this flower lady is a rich woman. So what Jackie has to do is create this tableau with all of his gangster friends to make this flower lady look like she's rich to impress her daughter. And there are many like beautiful, lavish scenes with crane shots in the nightclub. Yeah, uh, but that's not what we care about. What we, we well, care about is the fighting. We care about the fighting. Um, well, actually, first of all, one thing I want to say is Anita Mway... Is that how you pronounce her mm-hmm. name? Uh, she's uh, she was a uh, she's she's died since then. She was a very big Cantonese pop star and actress, and I think she is without a doubt Jackie Chan's best female co-star. You can see her as well. In... Actually, that's not true. Michelle Yeoh is his best female co-star, but but Anita Mui is very good. You can see her in Drunken Master Two as well as Miracles, and what she brings to Jackie Chan is a level of equalness. Like he would often cast women in his films that were like bumbling fools and didn't know what was going on and Anita Mway is the only one that seems to be in control and And I think the reason for that is that she was as famous as he was. And she gets to be really funny in his Yes, movies, exactly. Too. She gets to be as funny as him. You know, Miracles is over two hours long. I, <laughs> you feel it. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely got a lot of fat on it. Like, There's a whole section in the Hong Kong version where Jackie disappears for 25 minutes. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, it's charming, though. Mm-hmm. It looks good, and the fight scenes are as good as it gets. Yeah, this is pure Jackie Chan. Like, watching the fight scenes in Miracles... There is nothing he could do in those sequences other than maybe tying them coherently to the storyline. It is such a weird movie to have this like kind of lavish 30s um, gangster comedy uh, in a Hollywood style with kung fu scenes. He was very inspired by um, Hollywood musicals. And maybe that's his answer to the musical numbers are these fight scenes, which are insane. There's so much going on in them that you can get like a visceral thrill just from watching them on the first get go. But watching them again, you will notice little details mm. that you could, didn't spot the first time. Mm. There's a fight scene at the end in a rope factory where it, ropes are utilized in every possible or- how about the rickshaw fight? Yeah, it's he, crazy. It's and they're they're fight scenes where you want to play them almost in slow motion just to take in all the things he does. I mean, I, I'm com- I'm coming back to this idea that like we take it for granted when we watch one of his movies. You remember in Rumble in the Bronx, there's that fight in the gangsters' headquarters where he he like propels himself through a grocery cart. Mm-hmm. It's half a second on the screen, but think about how hard it is to propel your fucking body through a grocery cart. And not only that, but implement it in a scene where it just gets to play quickly and then it's gone. Yeah. Like you catch it almost in the moment Mm -hmm. and then you're moving on to something else. Yeah. Because your eye can't take in all this stuff. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like it's just moving so quick. When Jackie talks about like, oh, I spent 90 days on a fight scene. There's a reason for that. Like Mm. everything is so precise and so perfect that like us normal human beings who just want entertainment can't appreciate it for all that it is. Uh, Miracles was a success in Hong Kong, although I don't think it was as big a success in other territories, and it didn't get the awards recognition that he was hoping for. Yeah, he, this was one that he really pushed that, like, I can do something different. Mm. Like, I'm giving you the fight scenes that you expect from me, but I really want you to focus on this other stuff. But Mm. the problem with that is that when you open the film and you have, like, this super amazing action scene, you just want more of that and just (laughs) waiting for the next thing to happen. Yeah. Uh, He did win all the awards that he usually does. Like, he won for Best Action Choreography, which is an actual award to this day at the Hong Kong uh, Film Awards. Yeah. He wanted picture. He wanted director. Yeah, he he won all that. I think he was nominated for some of them. But I don't think he took them home. But then... Armor of God 2 Operation Condor was sort of his Waterloo as a director. So we have to understand that Jackie, as a director, had had a lot of experience. He, you know, started with The Young Master. Uh, He went on to do other classics like Police Story, which was his reaction to the protector. Project A. Yeah, Project A. And then he did Project A2, which was like four times the budget Mm -hmm. of Project A1. And Armor of the God 2 Operation Condor, I don't know what was going through his mind when he made it. It just must have been like, I need to push this as far as I can Mm -hmm. to the level of like almost Heaven's Gate like complexity and having to construct all these things. There's a set piece in the film, which is this Indiana Jones style. Jackie plays a guy named Asian Hawk who goes and steals. (laughs) Um, Yeah. He's like a treasure hunter, you know, and where they have like this comedy farce scene in a hotel and they built the inside of the hotel and the outside of the hotel in Hong Kong just for like this farce action scene, which is amazing. But 
the level that it took of detail just to do this, like he went super over budget, super over. There days. was a ton of like Egypt location mm-hmm. footage, I think, and there was that. There's the famous wind tunnel um, action scene at the end. I mean, it's a movie that was, you know, Hong Kong is a city of eight million people, mm-hmm. so you know a Jackie Chan movie was never going to break even at this level in Hong Kong alone yeah he just he couldn't do it yeah at that point uh, the Golden Harvest basically said he can't direct anymore Mm -hmm. and so they more or less handed the reins over to Stanley Tong became his favorite director Mm -hmm. he he would direct Police Story 3 Super Cop First Strike and Stanley Tong has a much more cosmopolitan style a a much more globetrotting and a less Hong Kong specific style so Stanley Tong was in a way an ideal director for that period when Jackie Chan was transitioning into Hollywood. But at the same time, this was also the first period where Jackie started to work with people you could actually call auteurs or Mm -hmm. people with a different kind of vision. Because right after um, the kind of fiasco of Operation Condor, he would go on to do things like star in Twin Dragons, which was a Troy Hark Ringo Lamb joint, which is like this, you know, it's just another action comedy inspired by that Jean-Claude Van Damme classic double impact. It's uh, Jackie Chan and his twin. Jackie Jackie Chan. Chan. And some really bad special effects. But what were what you would see in a movie like that, which was only made to fund the building of the Directors Guild Association mm-hmm. in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. is uh, like a weird, different kind of style to a Jackie Chan film. Like a Ringo Lamb slash Troy Hark style, which is weird because you're not used to seeing that kind of stuff. And Jackie would continue to work with other filmmakers like Kirk Wong in Crime Story, which was his attempt to... Um, kind of go away from his persona as like the you know comedy guy by adapting a real life kidnapping case but at the same time he and Kirk Wong butted heads on set and the film is unofficially co-directed by Jackie Chan and by the end you are getting those fight scenes that you expect from him yeah or a favorite of me and Will's City Hunter directed by Wong Jing who's kind of the most populist slash schlockmeister Hong Kong director Wong Jing was a filmmaker, is a filmmaker known for like really broad slapstick comedy. Um, and But a auteur, a man with his own <laughs> style and his own preoccupations, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, it is. City and, Hunter is a comic book, you know. And City Hunter is the craziest Jackie Chan film. And at the time when I was getting into him, was such an outliner that it like gained a special place in my heart. City Hunter is a film that defines everything that I love about Hong Kong cinema in its trashiest form. Mm. Like it's really dumb, but it's got crazy expressionist touches. It has like insane stunt scenes. It has like a Dick Tracy sort of color scheme to it. And like Jackie at one point rides a skateboard in the most absurd sequence in skateboard film history. Well, there's the famous climactic scene where um, he he gets imbued with the spirit of a Street Fighter arcade game and then he ends up fighting as every character from the Street Fighter franchise. This is also a film that has stuff like a musical number and a gambler who can throw cards like weapons so it's really got everything but it was an experience that jackie chan hated to the point that in his biography he gives it i think one line yeah where he's like i don't like this movie i think he said like everyone was disappointed you know expectations were high when me and wang jing collaborated <laughs> but, um and then there was drunken master 2 mm-hmm. where it was made as a benefit film for the hong kong stuntman association i think and it was 
originally directed by Lau Kar Lung, the director of so many of the great Shaw Brothers films. Yeah, probably the most famous Hong Kong action choreographer in history. But he was fired midway through production. and A little bit awkward as he's one of the like sub-characters in the movie. And Jackie Chan took over directing. And when you watch Drunken Master 2, which was released here as Legend of Drunken Master... A lot of these films were basically shot chronologically, and you can tell at around the two-third point, it becomes a Jackie Chan movie. The, the style of fighting becomes very different. Lau Kar Lung was much more of a purist in his fight scenes. He wanted to show what drunken boxing really looked like. Jackie Chan said, that's boring, let's do it a fun movie way, mm-hmm. because he's not reverential to the martial arts. Which is a little bit ridiculous when you see what Lock Harlong went and did right after with uh, Drunken Master 3, mm-hmm. which Lock Harlong directed, which is not reverential at all. It's just a silly lark. But, the, you know, the thing with Jackie Chan taking over Drunken Master 2 is... The final fight of that movie is the best he's ever done. Mm-hmm. It's, it's him versus his bodyguard Ken Lo, mm-hmm. who was known as a kicker, and it's insane. Like you, you sweat watching it. <laughs> yeah, you do. But I think Drunken Master Two also marks the end of Jackie Chan's golden period. Yeah, that, that you know, fifteen years of just incredible creativity. After that, he had Rumble in the Bronx and First Strike and Mr. Nice Guy, which are fun, kind of like stunt movies. Well, before we move on to his Hollywood period, we skipped over a film that me and Will watched for this podcast. Oh, yeah. And that's the Jackie Chan, Samuel Hung classic, Heart of a Dragon. This one came out in 1985, and it's a movie that only could have come out in Hong Kong in the 80s. So this is a movie where these kung fu stars did what all big major kung fu stars slash action stars try to do, try to rebrand themselves. And they did that by making a drama that was basically Simple Sammo. Yes. Where Sammo plays Jackie's brother. He's mentally handicapped. Yes. What, what's, a, what's a nice way to say it? <laughs> um, like, simultaneously, you're supposed to laugh at him, but it's also, like, a very sentimental, you know... And this is a film where, while you were talking about that they shot it chronologically, you can definitely feel that in this motion <laughs> picture, where nothing happens for an hour, just Jackie playing a guy named Jackie, like he always does, mm-hmm. who's a cop who wants a different life, doesn't know how to deal with his brother who has mental difficulties and then an hour in diamond smuggling gets uh, involved yeah. and then it ends with you know an incredible action scene i don't think they did a lot of research into what a a person with, with mental pro- handicaps with, with problems faces because sam hung plays him as if he's just an overgrown child mm-hmm. you see him hanging out with children you see him like wearing like dumb overalls and playing with toy playing with toys for god's sake yeah so this is a movie that I kind of got a kick out of just <laughs> because it's got first it's got great action scenes. Yeah. And secondly, just the audacity of it. I mean, this There's, this movie. The action scenes are so brutal, like oh, especially yeah. the final one where there's no comedy in this. This is Samo at his most like I want to show the real hits. And, like, mm. I want it to hurt. And you can see the difference of the way Sam Hong shoots an action scene, Jackie Chan, where Jackie just kind of lets the camera step back. It'll move a little bit to follow the action. And through rhythms of editing and tableaus, that's how he'll make his action scene. Sam is all about 
the way the lens captures that action and like little moves to accentuate it. Mm. Like the camera is working within a dance of the action, mm. which is funny uh, because that's not usually how Jackie works. Mm. We also would be remiss not to mention the Lucky Star films, which Jackie would appear in. Those were Sammo Hung's movies. Uh, Sammo and a team of four or five Hong Kong comedians uh, doing shenanigans. Uh, very, um, very problematic well, shenanigans. Yes. Very, very, very kind of like sexist shenanigans but these movies were very popular in hong kong the lunar new year is like their summer movie season Mm -hmm. where all the big blockbusters come out and these would be like popular entertainments for for like disposable yeah mass appeal films yeah but they're punctuated by really solid jackie chan action scenes well which is the one where like he's he's rollerblading and he literally rollerblades under a moving truck i don't know because they're all just like lucky star films there's one of them where jackie is in a haunted house in the climax of the movie (laughs) and they're famous for jackie having his worst fashion choices out of any of them including i believe like he has like a big yellow one piece jumpsuit at one point yeah that's the one where he roller skates under the truck so after legend of drunken master uh what ended up happening was the film that broke jackie chan in the english-speaking market and that is rumble in the bronx Mm. now the circumstances of why this happened specifically like that i'm not a hundred percent sure on but i think it's just a bunch of like little elements finally coming together and a studio in this case new line deciding all right we're gonna push them well there had been a lot of hype around the hong kong film industry those in the know you know like like there were advocates like quentin tarantino who presented him with his mtv movie award lifetime achievement (laughs) trophy or you know like there were there were People like Sylvester Stallone and Bruce Willis were trying to find opportunities to co-star with Jackie Chan. Uh, They wanted Jackie as the villain in Demolition Man. Uh, Ridley Scott wanted Jackie as the villain in his Japanese set film, Black Rain. The publicity around Rumble in the Bronx didn't really sell it as a kung fu comedy, but what it sold it as, this is the action star who does all his own stunts. Yeah, that's where... No fear, no stuntman, no equal. That's what the tagline was. This is where Jackie as like, I do all my own stunts was defined and unfortunately this is not true which well, is he does most of his own stunts compared to um stallone and if you look even at rumble in the bronx the big uh jump that he does between the buildings is not him that's the director although Stanley they Dog. fake it in the blooper reel they where do. they show him at the other side of the building da- doing a victory dance well i was gonna say uh, jackie chan might not have considered himself a huge stunt master but a lot oh, of, I mean, he is a huge but, stunt but, master. But, but a lot of those films would end with like a big stunt. Like audiences in Hong Kong look forward to whatever the big stunt was going to be. And I think it was just sort of expected in Hong Kong that action stars did their own stunts. Yeah, you know? uh, I've heard stunt choreographers talk about that actors don't have to do their own stunts, but they're looked down upon if they don't. So right. even like a pop star like Andy Lau, if he tries to like not do it, you know, they'll get a stuntman for him, but it's a little bit embarrassing. And Jackie... Like, he started as a stuntman, but the fact is that when Rumble in the Bronx came out, this was 1994, he had been a action star for 25 years. That's a long-ass time. When Rush Hour came out, he was 44. Like, that's insane. I think uh, his, you know, it was always a little bit hard to sell Jackie Chan here. Like, he... You know, when he appeared, he seemed like a big breath of fresh air because compared to Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Steven Seagal, he's this like 
meek. He's not like this super alpha, mm-hmm. uh, muscle bound movie star. He's he's kind of humble and modest. One of the big trailer moments from Rumble in the Bronx is like when he falls off the hovercraft and he gets up and someone says, "Are you okay?" and he goes, "No," and he runs off. <laughs> like he was the action star who would get hurt and allow you to see him get hurt. And I think what Rumble in the Bronx has for international audiences and what the distributor of the film believe would sell is, hey. It takes place in an environment that everybody knows. Yeah. And like, oh, okay, we can watch this. He's not fighting pirates or something like that. He's fighting just punks and goons. We can understand that. Yeah, and he's fighting in Vancouver, you know, <laughs> clumsily looking like the Bronx with mountains in the background. <laughs> Jackie has been quoted saying that they tried their best to not have the mountains in the background at first, and then he went, fuck it, I don't care. If they're looking at the mountains... That, yeah, like, you know, we failed. It doesn't matter. But what I love, too, about that movie is, like, there are so many, like, canned establishing shots of, like, the lower Manhattan skyline. Mm-hmm. And it's like, the Bronx is as far away from that as you can get. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but this movie went on to be a huge hit, making New Line Cinema $36 million. Um, and it was also, I think, one of his biggest hits ever in Hong Kong, too. Um, but I think uh, at the, in America, like, Jackie Chan's otherness was part of his appeal. Mm. Like, he was this little like five foot four Chinese man who spoke broken English. There's something like a little bit otherworldly about him. You yeah. Know? And the fact that this tiny man could do these incredible stunts. Uh, right from Rumble in the Bronx onward, he already cemented his Hollywood stardom by appearing in an Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn. <laughs> Which, if people don't know what this movie is, it's just like a travesty of a motion oh, picture. Where... Starring Eric Idle as Alan Smithy. And uh, Jackie Chan appears in a, a fake movie trailer with Whoopi Goldberg. Listen, if we talk about fucking an Alan Smithy film, we're going to be here all day. Let's get, like, so Rush Hour. We talked about Rush Hour, Hour on a premium episode. Yeah, we did. And that was a huge hit. But I think it's interesting, like, how relatively small his period of American superstardom mm. was. I mean... I don't know quite what to attribute it to. Clearly, Hollywood didn't take him all that seriously. They were casting him in movies like The Tuxedo, which you and I watched today. Yeah. The thing about Jackie in Hollywood is that other than the Rush Hour films, all the roles that he had treated him as an other. And I mean, there's a lot of reason for that. Mostly racism. (laughs) Mostly racism, but also... He doesn't speak English. Yeah, he doesn't speak English, and he's a middle-aged man. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, you know, Hollywood hasn't built itself the infrastructure to create a lot of roles for Asian people in general, Mm -hmm. sadly. But add a middle-aged Chinese man who can barely speak English. And what ended up happening was they would put him in, like, gimmicky action films. So you got him in um, Shanghai Noon with Owen Wilson Mm -hmm. in a cowboy situation. Or you have him in, like, Around the World in 80 Days, where he played with Steve Coogan and going on a bunch of wacky adventures. Or you have him in the tuxedo. And I think there was also an uncertainty about how much to emphasize the comedy. Because in Rush Hour and in Shanghai Noon, he's the straight man. Mm -hmm. You know, like... There seemed some uncertainty as to, like, how much comedy would American audiences accept from an action star. Mm -hmm. Now, The Tuxedo was marketed as a comedy. Yes. Um, So, yeah. Is it a comedy, though? We watched it together. Uh, Not a lot of laughs um, with us. I I mean, in in a strict, like, generic sense, I think it probably is a comedy, but... So, this is a film that is as miserable as you can get. We put this movie on thinking we would have fun with it. Because Jackie Chan in a magic tuxedo... I mean, we both saw this movie back in the day. Mm Mm-hmm. And hated it. <laughs> yes. But, but like, I think... I, I thought we were more mature and that we could like appreciate <laughs> could it for what it is. We could see the nuances of the story. <laughs> but instead, what we got was a film that tried to fight what people like about Jackie Chan. 
Well, one thing I like about this movie is Jackie at least gets to be kind of upbeat and uh, cheeky. And yeah, kind of, he talks a lot. He, he talks too much. Yes, probably. He, he plays uh, a, a limo driver to a James Bondian secret agent. And when that secret agent is uh, struck down or uh, fallen ill or whatever the hell happens to him, I think I was looking at my phone. Um, Jackie puts on his tuxedo, which it turns out like gives him Inspector Gadget like powers. <laughs> this is one of those things that's so frustrating is that like it's they had to find premise. <laughs> they had to find reasons why Jackie could like do kung fu fighting as yeah. opposed to just like letting him like guys he starred in movies where his name was Jackie Chan yeah. <laughs> like just let him do what he does the idea of like him putting on a magic tuxedo it's it's such a lame idea it reminds me of slam dunk Ernest when Ernest <laughs> yeah. has the magic shoes it's just such a low rent idea for a movie and also he's paired with Jennifer Love Hewitt in this film and they hate each other Sparks the entire time do not fly. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason that Jackie made this movie is because it's a DreamWorks production you watch the action scene in all of the movies and they're basically like if they forced like a grown adult who has like a master's to repeat kindergarten <laughs> like he's done all this boring bullshit early in his career well as we were watching it you were speculating can you imagine how they treated Jackie on the set of this movie mm-hmm. they were probably like well Jackie you've never worked in a movie this big yeah, before yeah welcome right? to Hollywood eh yeah and Jackie not only like started movies he also directed them like yeah. Miracles is a hundred times the tuxedo in complexity <laughs> the tuxedo is a film where like a punch is not thrown until 40 minutes in uh, it takes so long <laughs> long for him to put the fucking tux on <laughs> and then he only gets into like two and a half fight scenes well it's it's a painfully repetitive film because like there are about like <laughs> four parties they visit the, yeah the second half of the movie is just him and jennifer love hewitt go to a fancy party and then he goes inside the mansion and then he like there he gets into some farcical fight where there are some misunderstandings then they go to the next party mm-hmm Every one of these parties looks exactly the same. There is a funny scene where he... Kills James Brown? He kills James Brown. Although James Brown, it turns out, it survives. And he goes on stage instead of James Brown and he sings Sex Machine. If people were wondering, no, James Brown and Jackie never share the same frame together? Um, that they do in the closing credit blooper reel. Do they? Yeah, Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. And Keep your fucking eyes on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> this is the tuxedo we're talking about. This is a film that obviously has the stink of some no-name hack directing it. And this is the case of every Jackie Hollywood film. You know, watching The Tuxedo, you don't see Hollywood movies at this level that are this junky anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, this is probably a $70 million uh, big studio movie. And it has this very, like, kind of childish... Yeah, it treats its audience like they're idiots. Yeah, and like... All the villains are kind of like they're in, they're like henchmen in a Joel Schumacher Batman movie. Well, it's a film made by people who hate the kind of movie they're making. Yeah. Like, there's no joy in this. Whereas now, you know, like a movie like this, you know, movies at this level in Hollywood studios have kind of prestige casts in them, like Marvel Comics movies, for instance. Mm-hmm. They, they, the, the affect that they give off is not quite so unpleasant and uh, joyless as this one. I mean, the only reason that Jackie probably had the success that he did in Hollywood is because Brett Ratner 
supposedly is the one that wanted him to be in Rush Hour. Yeah. He was like, I want Jackie Chan. And he let Jackie Chan do his thing in limited capacity. Well, he had an idea for what to do with Jackie Chan. Mm-hmm. It's an idea I disagree with, frankly. Yeah. I also think Brett Ratner's a bad man. <laughs> Brett Ratner's a very <laughs> bad man. And it's crazy to consider that Rush Hour 2 was such a massive hit. It was the number t- four movie of the year. <laughs> $226 million. Insane. It's also crazy to remember that Rush Hour 3 had Roman Polanski in it. <laughs> you bring that up every time we mention it. I just, because I, I, I think about it every single day. <laughs> every day. Every day. I think of... Welcome to France. At, yeah, at, at some point, there is that scene where, where Roman Polanski, as the border patrol cop, puts on a rubber glove and says, welcome to Paris. And that's a big trailer moment. <laughs> Roman Polanski threatening to rape Jackie Chan was a huge trailer moment. So Hollywood almost instantly uh, realized they did not know what to do with Jackie Chan. He appeared in such trash as The Medallion. Garbage. Which came out in 2003, which is still weirdly more of a Chinese production, being directed by Gordon Chan, the man who made um, Fist of Legend and would go on to be a mainland Chinese sellout. (laughs) Saw that movie in a theater. Now, this is also the period when Jackie's starting to have some trouble in Hong Kong. Mm Mm-hmm. Because after, you know, 20, 25 years of squeaky clean press, he uh, fathered an illegitimate child with Miss Asia. Yep. Um, There was that famous incident where he barged on stage of a concert drunk. You know, all stuff that that chipped away at his his squeaky clean public image. The fact that he uh, had no role in the life of his son, J.C. Chan, pretty much. Yeah. Shipping him off to live somewhere else while he he did his own thing. He married his wife and basically abandoned his family. Mm -hmm. Um... And, so, you know, it's not really our place to to put moral judgments. Although I think this, you know, if we were to do that, I think this comes back to the idea that Jackie never really grew up. No. Uh, if you listen to him in interviews, he talks about the Peking Opera experience. And that's such a part of him to this day. Mm-hmm. And he never had like a chance to like grow up in a sense. Because mm-hmm. right after that, after being beaten and forced to do all this shit... He was thrust right into the film industry. So he's still a kid in some sense. So after moving on from Hollywood, after Hollywood had no more use for him. Yeah, Around the World in 80 Days was like the last one that he basically had in Hollywood, which is a decent film. Mm. Uh, and after I think it's that, kind of fun. Yeah, it is yeah. fun. Yeah. I think yeah. that it's an example of like where Jackie could have really worked yeah. in, in this sense. Like it's a film that treats him with a level of respect. Well, it's got fun action scenes. And, and Sam Hung shows up in yeah, it. Yeah, Steve Coogan, you know, yep. that's pretty good. But he goes back to Hong Kong, and in the mid-2000s, he made uh, a string of movies, including New Police Story, which, if you watch it today, is more dated than anything out of the Edison studio. It's just, like, <laughs> fucking... Well, Jackie uh, got into that period where he wanted to be a real dramatic actor. Now, every martial arts actor says this, like, they're like, I want to run on the beach like Robert De Niro. <laughs> now, we've heard them say this multiple times, Sam O. Jackie, what beach Robert De Niro movie are they talking about? Well, in uh, New Police Story, he plays a disgraced cop who, through his uh, fumbling, uh, his entire team was killed by a gang of um, 20-something hacker... Generation like, Xers. Yeah, G- Gen X, like, super cool, like, hacker criminals. Um, no, I mean, he treats it with the respect that it deserves, weeping and crying ah! and getting drunk. <laughs> oh, there are so many scenes of him like descending into alcoholism where he is like like he brings all the dignity that he brought drunken master like just staggering in alleyways <laughs> and you know after new police story which does feature good fight scenes it's one of the last of his movies i think he would go on and make scenes. stuff like robin b hood 
which is the nadir of Hong awful, Kong, Jackie awful. Chan. But, you know, this was around the time that the Hong Kong film industry was starting to collapse. Or, well, not starting. It was well into collapse yeah. uh, for a variety of factors. Mm-hmm. There was bootlegging. Uh, there was an aging talent pool. There was increased competition from Hollywood films. There you was know, the, um, you know, siren's call of the Chinese market. Yeah. Which Hong Kong never really worried about too much. The mainland China started investing more and more in their film industry. Uh, they started building more theaters. They started allowing American movies to play in the theaters so that they could fund a mainland Chinese film industry. They started to make movies like Hero, which was nominated for an Oscar. Mm-hmm. Curse of the Jade. Um, I almost said Curse of the Jade Scorpion. That's that <laughs> the go- classic Woody yeah. Allen film. What's, uh, what's Curse of the um, Golden Flower. Oh, yeah. That's another uh, Zhang Yimou film. Yeah. These big kind of like state sanctioned propaganda epics. And Jackie Chan started to go. Hmm. I smell money over here. <laughs> yeah. So he further kind of alienated himself from Hong Kong by becoming a uh, Communist Party mouthpiece. Mm-hmm. The kind of man who would say in interviews, I think the Chinese need to be controlled. Kind of any. Maybe it, they have too much freedom. Yeah. A, anytime sort of a pro democracy protest would happen, he would be there to say why it was a bad thing. And so, Jackie, you get the sense that. He doesn't really have that much experience with the outside world. Well, I mean, I think he's somebody who's not all that smart. And, you know, he's he's not... He never had to grow up. There's this one interview that me and Will have seen multiple times where he takes a camera crew through his secret, you know, <laughs> house that he has where he collects his stuff. And he goes, you know, you start collecting something and it's your obsession and then you have all of them well, and you uh, go wait wait he, he goes he shows his teacup collection yeah. he goes I, I get really into teacup and I collect teacup and more teacup teacup and more teacup and I have room full of teacup and then I realize why I don't like teacup uh, Pierce Brosnan on the set of The Foreigner said that Jackie fell in love with a garbage can or like <laughs> a garbage bin that he found and Jackie went out and bought five of them that's ridiculous <laughs> it's crazy but to your point about how the Chinese opera school is so central to his DNA. Like, I think he is an authoritarian. Mm. Like, he grew up under the iron fist of this master, and I think he believes in a certain kind of... I mean, it's the way he treats his son. Or the way that he treats his stunt crew. Yeah, Uh, There's an Esquire piece, I believe, that appeared recently, where he he is described as, like, this dictator-like figure who... When he's done eating, everybody else has to stop eating as well. The the Jackie Chan stunt team sounds like Scientology or something. (laughs) It's this weird cult. Uh, So, I mean, I don't think it's disingenuous, his turn into being a Mm. propagandist. Like, it didn't come out of nowhere. I wish the movies were better. Well, he's done a string of films. Like, he did a a historical propaganda film called 1911, which is... I threatened that me and Will were going to have to watch it. Well, I saw it in a theater, Mm -hmm. um, and it was one of the worst experiences of my life. (laughs) It's so boring. You and I uh, had the unique privilege of seeing Mm -hmm. his movie Chinese Zodiac play at uh, the Tiff Bell Lightbox. The third in the Asian Hawk trilogy. Yeah. And this was one that Jackie spoke about in terms of a return to form. Like, Mm -hmm. he's going to bring that Jackie Chan-style action back to the screen after being watered down in Hollywood for so long. This is a movie uh, where he, you know, he's... Asian Hawk is this freelance mercenary treasure hunter 
who uh, goes around the world stealing artifacts. And um, it's set against the backdrop of, you know, the 12 Zodiac heads that were pillaged from the from the Forbidden Kingdom, how they were selling at auctions for record prices. And this was a great historical humiliation for China. So he has to go around collecting these Zodiac heads um, so that... And getting into... Lame fight scenes along the way. Lame fight scenes, but Oliver Platt plays the sinister auctioneer who at one point says, huh, these Chinese will pay anything for their artifacts. Their patriotism is our profit. So this is the time that Will started liking Jackie Chan in a different way. Well, I mean, Jackie Chan breaks my heart. Yeah. Like, I hate seeing him become this. Well, he should have just retired. So, like, th- like, there's a whole, like, Chinese Zodiac, you really have to see it to believe it. And I think the Chinese... You have to see the Hong Kong version. <laughs> yeah, see, see the original Chinese version because it has all the great propaganda stuff. By the way, I wrote an article for Hazlitt called Jackie Chan, the Anti-Iwayway, where, I mean, you'll hear you'll be able to read more of my thoughts on this subject (laughs) if you haven't got enough of it but like there's this whole commune like jackie visits this this commune that's supposed to be like really vibrant and youth-led of like international young chinese artifact repatriators (laughs) and and they're like they're like cool 20 somethings in a clubhouse atmosphere and one of them says now remember we don't disrupt the social order We don't pose problems for the government. <laughs> Oof. Or what about that scene when, like, they're touring this palatial French estate where this, like, the heiress talks about all these Chinese artifacts she's inherited. And uh, this Chinese woman who's there, they have this Socratic dialogue about how can you justify uh, pillaging these artifacts from a largely agrarian country? <laughs> just, oh my God. just stilted, awful dialogue. Well, Jackie, one of the reasons that he did become that propagandist is that he had problems in Hong Kong where he wanted to do a bunch of stuff and the government would not allow him to do it. Yeah. And then when he came to China, they're like, oh, well, you're Jackie Chan, you're a star. You can do whatever you want well, to do. Ja- Hong Kong is a small place. Mm-hmm. You can't just like fucking... He wanted to, I think he wanted to buy like a bunch of like apartments or like houses along and yeah. like do a demolition and build something else there and they wouldn't let well, him. Well, like there's endless space in the mainland. Yeah. Uh, well, probably not endless because the mainland is probably happy to let him like, you know, torpedo a small village. <laughs> oh, you... it's Jackie Chan that did it? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Chinese Zodiac, me and Will had the pleasure of seeing it with Jackie Chan at the TIFF Lightbox. Okay, so we were told he had been there that week to introduce several of his screenings. He... And we were told that he, he had to get on a plane to Beijing. He couldn't make it. But they played a video introduction. And so, you know, we were all a little a little sad about that. But we watched the movie. And of course... Laughing all the way as the movie goes on like it it gets increasingly ridiculous and like you know people are just openly laughing and then at the end of the movie um somebody comes out and says ladies and gentlemen jackie chan and of course we all leapt to our feet yeah because he because the the end credits play to you know a a clip reel of all his great stunts because this was his 100th movie (laughs) yeah sure it is whatever (laughs) that's how it was marketed and he and you know he comes out and you know i think we're all like so grateful that, that he's there but he probably was also in the balcony listening to us laugh at the movie. Supposedly. And I imagine that he's in the balcony, one lone tear <laughs> running down his cheek. Because the balcony was closed, yeah. which is ridiculous because I'm sure it sold out. Well, I I mean, I'll never forget the first thing he said uh, after after it ended, where when the applause was he pointed at the screen and he goes, there's a lot of messages, huh? But... 
he also was super apologetic. Well, he was kind of like, uh, now I know it's not perfect. Some of the dialogues are oh, perfect. Oh, still got to uh, edit a bunch of stuff. I mean, it's biggest movie all time in China. I yeah. don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he kept talking about how they're going to make changes. And it's like, no, the movie is out. Like, you could walk into a store and buy the Chinese <laughs> Blu-ray. Well, I don't know if it had American distribution yet. Mm. Uh, I remember I was... I was um, at the the screening with uh, uh, my friend Luke and Dan Berube was in front of us. And Dan Berube, uh, who's been on the podcast, he turned around and said, boy, I really feel bad about stealing all those Chinese artifacts now. <laughs> <laughs> and you could almost, I wonder if that's the moment where Jackie's like heart was broken in front of that Toronto audience. <laughs> and he decided, you know what? I'm just going to dedicate myself to Chinese propaganda from now on. Do you remember the other time we saw him at the Toronto International Film Festival? Yeah, he, he did a Q&A. He did a Q&A, and um, it happened to be the same day that Silver Linings Playbook was was playing. So, surprise appearance by Mr. Chris Tucker. Where Jackie's face just registered instant horror when he <laughs> saw Chris Tucker coming on stage. But that's the quickest I've ever leapt to my feet for a standing <laughs> ovation. And when he left, a beat went, and Jackie went, Is he gone? <laughs> So, I mean, there's not much we can say about Jackie's career post-Chinese Zodiac that we haven't spoken about endlessly in the last 99 episodes, I think. Um, We've talked about almost all of his major releases since then. Every time one of them comes out, we'll talk about it, you know. And we'll probably still keep talking about it. And Because even though I've kind of given up hope, I mean, The Foreigner was okay. I've kind of given up hope on him being like giving me any more great movies. Well, he's not, like, he's old. He's old. (laughs) He He can't do that. But even so, like... This Chinese propaganda element, like, is it kind of heartbreaking to yeah, me? Yeah, like it the, soured the like it like it like it, the fact that he's just this mouthpiece for an oppressive regime is sad for me. But I mean, I'm still interested in these movies because that's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to see how the Hong Kong film industry has migrated to Beijing to become foot soldiers for well, this regime. I was reading some articles online about like how he's treated in China. Like, or not even treated, just how people kind of look at him. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time, they look at him as a bit of a joke. Like, mm-hmm. he's the old elder statesman who doesn't really know what's going on and says a lot of dumb stuff. Uh-huh. There was, I don't remember, what was the exact, like, phrase? Duong? Yeah, which yeah. was just a nonsense word that he said incorrectly. Yeah. And that people kept, like, saying it and, like, making fun of him to the point that it was repurposed as the tagline in the movie he made was Johnny Knoxville Skip Tracer. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, Kung Fu Yoga made $250 million in China. Did it, though? Because well, the thing about China is that there's some problems with uh, overinflation to their box office. Well, still, I think it was probably like it, it's, it's, it's a hit. By, yeah. by all accounts, it was a huge success. So, you know, he's laughing all the way to the bank. And the thing is that people will continue to go see Jackie Chan films. Like, I don't think he'll continue to appear in Hollywood films. The last one he was in was uh, The Forbidden Kingdom and Karate Kid 2 good movies. Well, The Foreigner is like a Hollywood co-production. Yeah, like an international kind of co-production. Mm-hmm. But um, I, there's no reason for him to do that. I feel like the sense that he did it, he went to Hollywood, he was a big star, everybody knows who he is. It didn't work out for him. He gave the, his trust in them, mm-hmm. like, oh, you guys know what you're doing, and they just let him down. So, like, there's no reason for him to go back there. Especially when he has, you know, uh, master filmmakers like Ding Chen to work with mm-hmm. the uh, artist behind Little Big Soldier, uh, Police Story 2013, and Railroad Tigers. <sighs> 
listen, you're going to go see every Jackie Chan film as it comes out, and I'm going to be there with you. We're already planning on Tuesday to see another Jackie Chan film. Yeah, what's this movie called? I don't remember, but it's based on a famous Japanese novel. It's insane. Like, yeah, there's another Jackie Chan movie playing at the Young and Dundas right now. Um, (laughs) Like, it's not an action film, though. No. So maybe he's getting into those non-action roles. But, you know, I've I've spent so much time over the last decade being kind of sad and disappointed about Jackie Chan disillusioned by him. This week to me was a great opportunity to look back at some of the classics and rediscover why I loved him and why I think he is one of the greatest entertainers in the world. Yeah, I think that there's no doubt that looking at his filmography, that he's a genius at what he does. Mm -hmm. And he is unparalleled because like no one did it like he did. And people have tried to imitate him Mm -hmm. along the way. Uh, Who can forget classics like... Billy Chong? (laughs) Yeah, Billy Chong. (laughs) Kung Fu Zombie and stuff like that. But no one has been able to like recreate that Jackie Chan magic, which is unfortunate, but we have his entire body of work. And, you know, until they die out, all the people that he worked with are still kind of working, like Nikki Lee, who was uh, the head of his stunt team. Any, like, Hong Kong film that you see these days is choreographed by him. Mm-hmm. So it's like that you know, level of artistry still exists and it's going to disappear one day because nobody is helping it out and there's nowhere for it to flower from. Yep. It's too bad they're not selling more children into uh, (laughs) slavery. (laughs) Well, all right. So that's it. Our Jackie Chan episode. I hope it was everything that uh, people hoped it would be. Sure. Sure is exhausting. I'm sure we'll return to this topic again. (laughs) Again. And again. I mean, we have a Patreon episode this week uh, about an interesting uh, side passage in Jackie's career. The films he made with Jimmy Wang Yu, uh, a triad boss, mm-hmm. because he was obliged to. So those were Fantasy Mission Force and Island of Fire. It's called the Contractually Obligated Jackie Chan episode. Mm-hmm. And if that's not enough, last week on our Patreon, we also talked about Jackie Chan and his new movie, Bleeding Steel. Yeah. So if you want to listen to those, it's $5 a month. Uh, you get four episodes of the Important Cinema Club that are exclusive to the Patreon every month. Do we have any letters, Justin? We do. But before we get to those, I want to say this right now. Episode 200, Godzilla. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) It'll be our super Godzilla episode. Uh, People are going to have to wait another 100 episodes. I don't know if I can wait 100 episodes. (laughs) We're going to run out of filmmakers by that point. (laughs) So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Our letter this week goes... First Spanish subscriber. Hey, Justin and Will. Thanks a million for such a great podcast. After spending weeks searching for one I liked, I somehow stumbled upon yours a couple of months ago. Take and I've that film spotting. Been a fan since. In fact, I have just subscribed to your Patreon. You are the kind of guys that I would love to meet in a party and make friends with. I have two <laughs> questions and no suggestions. Sorry, our friends limit is uh, filled. I got one, and his name is Will Sloan. <laughs> <laughs> One of the reasons your podcast is so awesome is that you pay attention to your fans. Thank you. Do we? (laughs) You would not be reading my letter otherwise. Ah, You're right. So my question is, how are you going to handle the success that is surely to come? Well, we're 100 episodes in, and the success has so far been modest. (laughs) You will be overwhelmed sooner or later. Are you going to become that friend we all have as kids who turns cool over the summer and no longer says hi in the school hallways? 
I think uh, Will I, is already there. Yeah, do I say hi? No, you, you try not to make eye contact. I think I think I try to maintain a healthy distance. I like to get into conversations with people, and then, you know, after a minute and stuff that we could talk about runs out, I awkwardly look around for a way to get out of it. I, uh, I value my privacy. <laughs> <laughs> Listening to your older podcast, I've seen all the cool contests you have made. Are you planning another one soon? I want to participate. We'll get back to that in a second. And now my suggestion. I have recently discovered a director that I have really enjoyed, and I think it would be a good fit for an episode. Terrence Fisher from Hammer Films. His movies are quite interesting. Takes on classic monster movies. Keep up the good work, and Happy New Year from Spain. We should consider doing that. I'm not. I'm really not a huge Hammer Films fan. Um, yeah, but, I but don't. I haven't experienced enough of them. I think. I, I mean, there was always something about uh, Hammer Films that strikes me as a little bit. I mean, I don't know you, you compare them to like what the Italians were doing, and they're they're not as, quite as energetic. They're, well, they're, they're very specific culturally at that moment. Yeah. I think that the people who like them love them, and sometimes get obsessed with them. And because we weren't there yeah. to like kind of absorb them in our youth. But I think like maybe we should consider that for a shocktober thing because mm-hmm. like maybe if we watch a bunch of them in a row yeah yeah all right and um borgia also says p.s add me to the list of people who have discovered detour thanks oh, to you hey. loved it well this ties into the contest thing so me and will were hanging out at uh will's apartment and i saw a stack of dvds that were on there and i went oh man this one uh looks like it was like a bootleg of some sort. And he's like, oh yeah, this company put it out, blah, blah, blah. And I went, Will, we should put stuff out on Blu-ray. And it's like, yeah, why, Like, what's keeping us? Well, number one, we need movies to release. Or do we? Because there's a little scene called The Public Domain. <laughs> <laughs> so, me and Will, under the Important Cinema Club banner, we're not sure what the label is called yet, are putting together a Blu-ray for the film Detour. Yeah. Which... Surprise, surprise, it's under the public domain. <laughs> so what we're going to do is we're going to put it together a Blu-ray. There's going to be a second feature, which I don't know if we're going to announce, but we'll wait yeah. on that. And we're going to do commentary on it. There's going to be like video essays and basically whatever you would want on a Blu-ray, including like an essay, a little booklet and stuff like that. You mentioned you always kind of dreamed of having your own public domain film label, right? <laughs> I did. Yeah. Where we can release a mixture of like noir Poverty Row, Kung Fu film, yeah. Bruce Floytations. Oh, God, this so, is going to be so fun. That's what we're going to do. Um, we're probably going to put them up on the website at some point, specifically Detour. But we're going to do a contest for people that are Patreon subscribers. So if you're like on the fence, and you're like, I don't know if you should become a Patreon. Do it now because we're going to do like a draw for, I'm not sure how many Blu-rays yet, but they'll be numbered because we're not going to make that many. Like, why would we? And you made it this far in the episode. Yeah, so... Get, get on there, become a Patreon subscriber, and soon you will be able to hold a copy of Detour, basically hosted by the Import Cinema Club. Yeah. I don't think we'll do video content in the sense that like we're going to appear on camera. Well, who knows, though? I've got a face for radio. <laughs> yeah, but commentary tracks, like all that jazz. Mm. And, you know, <laughs> finally you'll be able to put a copy of Detour beside the, like I guess, hundreds of public domain releases that have been put out. Yes. <laughs> Gold star. Okay, so again, you can send us letters to Important Cinema Club podcast at gmail.com and next week we're going to be doing an episode that we have to do which is going to be our top 10 lists yeah why way not? late <laughs> yeah. it doesn't feel like early that people have been doing it this year 
Well, it seems like they all put them at the beginning of December. It's like, that, what the hell? Yeah, because all the press screenings are at the beginning of the December mm. to, uh, you know, for the critic awards. I haven't had time to watch The Greatest Showman yet. Like, I can't make my top ten list. So that's what it's going to be next week. Uh, I'll be seeing father figures this week. <laughs> Perhaps you'll want to join. <laughs> so we could definitely decide if that makes the cut or not. Until then, my name is Justin McClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So this is our 100th episode, and we're going to make it all about us, right, Will? How did this podcast start? I knew Will, not as a friend, but more of a, as an acquaintance. As a he, friendly enemy. Yeah, he's the guy that I hated his Twitter, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which I would tell him every opportunity that he's I could. A, Justin's not joking, either. <laughs> no, no. Ma- Matthew Kumar still hates my Twitter and tells me every time I see him. <laughs> does, he, uh, does he still follow you? I think he does. Okay. Well, he might not anymore. Yeah, who, who knows? Yeah. But... Uh, when I got to know Will better, he I discovered that he was like a film fan who knew a lot about cinema. He seemed like a smart guy. He had glasses. <laughs> and he was a nerd like me. And I don't know how I got the guts to be like, hey, Will, we should do a podcast together. I think we had hung out a few times before, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, You pitched it to me on the idea, let's talk about uh, King of Comedy and Cracking Up. And yeah, I went right podcast. to your, like, the easy, the shortcut, Jerry And then, and then I kind of said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. And then, and then all of a sudden I found myself at your apartment and talking about it and then all of a sudden next week I also found myself at your apartment talking about it you know it just kept it just going. kept going from there and I think you know in the early days I must say I was a little insecure about the podcast the idea of two white guys having a movie podcast you know you can tell in the early days you're not taking it too seriously like you're undercutting things a lot I know all the time I know um you know name podcast you know it hurts then, growing but, up but then all of a sudden um you know I became a podcast impresario <laughs> Now, now I have two podcasts. That's right. Uh, one of them very successful and the other Important Cinema Club. Yeah. <laughs> but what do you think that Important Cinema Club, like doing the podcast, has it expanded your vocabulary of the way you talk about film? I don't think so. I, I don't know. I think having to, uh, first of all, it's brought discipline to my life. Mm-hmm. having to do it every week. Because <laughs> you have movies you have to watch. <laughs> I have movies I have to watch. But also, yeah, like knowing that I have to fill some time mm-hmm. talking about them and I have to have like somewhat coherent ideas about them has maybe sharpened my thinking a little bit. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's really kind of crazy looking back at all the podcasts that we did and realizing we talked for 40 minutes about this one thing because I'm like, I don't remember talking about this. Yeah, like, yeah. What did we say about Mike Lee? Or Guy Madden. Yeah. Like, that's the, that's the craziest thing. Yeah. Or the fact that, like, it's a podcast that me or you have no idea how to advertise and that we've done <laughs> none of it. So any listeners that we have have just stumbled upon it's us. It's been a word of mouth. Yeah, phenomenon. because we have film and podcast in the title. Yes. Is there an episode that you like pref- liked more than others that you've done? I mean, I guess Ed Wood or Jerry well, Lewis. Well, yeah, I mean, probably whatever I'm most interested in. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, has there been anything that you've discovered, like that you've gone like, whoa, I didn't know I liked this that much? I think Kelly Reichardt might be one. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always liked her, but it was, but that was a topic that sort of clicked for me uh, in a new way when we did that episode. What about you? I'm trying to think if there's... I mean, Mike Lee, I hadn't really watched his movies, and I really really enjoyed the ones that I watched but as far as like something that I had a, a, an easy liking to <laughs> Wong Kar Wai you know that yeah. famous episode or infamous episode where my dislike for In the Mood for Love that, comes out loud and that, clear that's still insane that you don't like <laughs> I know that movie. that's a movie that like I gotta go back to it in like a year or so and watch it and go, man, I was completely wrong. What was I thinking? You know, I, I feel very fondly towards our Poverty Row episode. Mm-hmm. I like occasionally if we can if we can do a really comprehensive look at a subject that 
dare I say, maybe educational? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the thing about this podcast that I enjoy the most about it is that I hope that people go away from it thinking like, oh, there's these movies that I want to watch that I had never heard of before. Mm. Because that's the most interesting thing, which is tough because when I look at a podcast and there's like guests on it, I'm like, I don't know who that is. I don't want to listen to that. <laughs> so I can imagine it's the same idea when someone like sees a filmmaker or like a subject that they don't know about and yeah. they assume that, well, I've never heard of this, so I probably will have no interest in it. Mm. But where do you see the future? Like, are we going to run out of filmmakers or topics that we can talk about? Um, I see us uh, in within the next few weeks developing a Chapo Trap House sized Patreon account. Uh, can you imagine that it will just take like one famous person to like tweet us out, uh, and then that we actually get like random listeners? If that... Justin Bieber tweeted us out, <laughs> fellow Canadian Justin yeah. Bieber, then like. Things would be different. We're going to say right now, if you're not a Patreon subscriber, all the good stuff are in those episodes. But listen, Justin, to me, this is all about you and me. Yeah. This is all about our friendship. I think we've grown as friends. Yes, I would say so uh, as well. I, I, feel, I, I feel like we were not friends particularly long before the podcast <laughs> no. started. Probably just like six months. <laughs> yeah, or not even like acquaintances. And, and then probably like maybe two months we were hanging out. And yeah. then all of a sudden it, it just... Well, when you're forced to hang out with someone every every week and have a conversation yeah, with them. Yeah. It, it's different. And I, I do really appreciate the friendship that we have now, Will. Oh. And then we hug on the podcast. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cry. And then uh, we say, please donate to our Patreon $5 a month. Yeah, uh, because if you don't, this, this friendship is breaking up. <laughs> That'll be it for the important We don't thing. actually speak outside the No, 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 never. Absolutely never. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, like, the future does hold some interesting things like maybe a live show coming up soon <laughs> i don't know maybe we'll talk about that soon you know what less popular podcasts than <laughs> us have done live shows so why not even though our listenership in toronto is seemingly very small according to the well, numbers well we're uh we're a big um international fan. you know what i think i think all our friends in toronto just see us and yeah. don't need to hear us <laughs> yeah, they hear from us enough yeah. like they don't need to listen to us every week